0: Well, good morning, everyone. The uh, the one, I have several regrets. One is on your behalf, that Stephen is not here, and I am. And the second regret on all our behalf is that uh, we cannot do communion today because we don't have um, a, a, an ordained pastor to administer the sacraments. I don't, I don't know about you, but I just so love our communion, and I truly miss it. And we tried like the Dickens, but everybody was gone or committed elsewhere, so there won't be any uh, communion today unless you go home and do it over your own table, which is quite all right to do. Uh, I'm going to talk uh, this morning about identity and the issue of pride. And I'm going to start off giving you a slightly different definition of sin than you've been accustomed to. Uh, and I'm going to define sin as basing our identity on anyone or anything other than Christ. So let me, let me repeat that. Sin, now this is not ri- original with me. I'd like to claim credit for it, but it's actually Dietrich Bonhoeffer's thought that if you, it's, it's, it's not just do this and don't do that. It's when your sense of who you are is based on race or nationality or politics or education or money, anything other than Christ, that is sin. Now Stephen has been preaching a series on following Jesus. And before he began this series, indeed before he announced it, I was given the task of preaching this Sunday and next. So. First of all, I've taken a photograph of everybody here. So if you're not here next Sunday, I'm personally visiting you and asking why. Uh, but after praying, after I, and you know, this, a typical Presbyterian manner, I got this assignment like 18 years ago. But I began to pray what would God want me to preach on, and he, uh, what came to me after much prayer was preaching on this identity of, I, uh, of pride, the sense of who we are, and next week it's gonna be on how we beat ourselves up in the sense of who we are. So this week it's pride, next week it's it's uh, just the opposite when we have a too low opinion of ourselves. Uh, but the focus is not on how others see us. The focus is on how we see ourselves. Um, so my focus this week and next is how our sense of who we are influences how we follow Jesus and how, our, um, and how following Jesus influences our sense of who we are. So let's start off with the word of prayer, please. And we're going to focus on Moses this week and next for both aspects of this message. Father, we uh, ask you to be with us and give us both understanding and insight about who we are in your sight and the things that prevent us from following you the way we should, the pride in our hearts that separate us from you and from other people. And we ask you to give us pride in Christ and a realistic understanding of who we are. In Christ. In His name we pray. Amen. Now, on page uh, six of your bulletin, there's the text, and it's probably up on the screen behind me, so I'll read and you follow along. It's from Exodus 2. Now, a man of the house of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her slave girl to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. And the girl went and got the baby's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. And when the child grew older, uh, and of course the woman was his mother. Um, So the woman took the baby and nursed him, and when the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, "I I drew him out of the water. One day, after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Glancing this way and that and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. The next day, he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? And the man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me just as you killed the Egyptian? And then Moses was afraid and thought, what I did must have become known. And when Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled Pharaoh and went to live in Midian. Now right on the next page is an outline on page seven. And I have discovered Stephen Cooper's trick and I'm now copying it. Sometimes when you are preparing a message, your outline points are crystal clear in your mind and they never change. Other times they change and you realize you should have done it this way, you should have ordered it this way, but it's already gone to print and there's nothing you can do about it except to leave it blank and fill it in on Sunday morning and I'm so glad I did that. So my outline here has three points. The first one is how circumstances influence how we perceive ourselves. How circumstances influence how we perceive ourselves. Second, the way we perceive ourselves influences how we behave. And the last point is the gospel transforms how we perceive ourselves. So I want to start off with my first point, how circumstances influence how we perceive ourselves. And you've seen the story of Moses. It is, by any account, a miraculous story. He's miraculously rescued by uh, Pharaoh's daughter. It's obvious Uh, to Pharaoh's daughter that he's a Hebrew because uh, he's circumcised um, and uh, he looks Hebrew rather than Egyptian. Now he grows up in Pharaoh's home. Now he is unique in the household of Pharaoh. Pharaoh has a number of wives, he has a number of children, the household is large. He is unique within that household. He is, from the day he grows up, outcast, Just as his people are foreigners in a strange land, he's a foreigner in a strange family. They all know he's different, and he knows he's different. But um, let me read a short passage from Acts 7 that's talking about Moses. This is Peter speaking after Pentecost. When he was placed outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her own son. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and actions. So let me give this in a more uh, personal cultural context. Imagine that this is um, 1790 and a black child is taken out of the plantation out of the slave quarters and moved into the home of the slave master. And obviously, everybody knows he's not the son of the slave master, because they're white and he's black. And he grows up, but he does everything they do. He gets to go to school, he gets to go to church, he gets to go, but there is this sense throughout his life of being different and other, and it may not come to him all of a sudden, but as he grows up, he knows that he is like the people out in the fields who are sweating and working hard and being treated as slaves. Now, he grows up with this duality uh, in his mind. Now, uh, uh, Moses is physically impressive, we know from this text. He's intellectually impressive. He's what you and I would call a man's man. If he were alive today, he would be checking out Captain America with some of the guys. He'd be roughhousing on the street as a kid. Uh, And yet, he also knew that the time was close, or coming close, for the Hebrew people to be freed. Because their forebear, Aaron, uh, Abraham, was told that the Hebrew people would be slaves in Egypt for 400 years. Now, they were in Egypt longer than that, but they weren't slaves longer than that. They were slaves for 400 years. And so, roughly calculating, he knew that somehow the time for the liberation of his people was God-ordained and that that time was near. So his identity was profoundly shaped by three things. One is that he was a Jew. And as a Jew, he was heir to the promises of God. He knew that, and in the brief time that his mother had with him, she got across somehow the fact of his Jewishness, or we would have called it Jewish at that time, the Hebrew, his Hebrewness, and the fact that he was an heir to the promises that were originally articulated to Abraham. Secondly, he was a prince of Egypt, while his people remained oppressed. And so there would be a sense, as you can understand, that there was something special about him. There would be a certain amount of pride that he was not suffering the way his people were suffering. But by the same token, there would be a sense of guilt that his circumstance was different, not only from all the other Hebrew people, but from his mother, his father, and his sister. And his older brother Aaron. And the third factor that influenced him is that he knew he had a divine destiny. Again, when his mother uh, put him in that reed boat, sealed with pitch and tar, and set it in the reeds—I uh, mean, think of it—if if today you heard that a mother had taken her child, put him in a little boat, and set him out in the ocean from San Diego Bay, you'd be outraged, the parent would be arrested. Child Protective Service would take the child, and yet Moses was taken by Pharaoh's daughter and raised in privilege. And by the way he was raised and saved, He knew that he had a divine destiny because he had been miraculously rescued by the very people who ordained that Hebrew male babies should be killed. In that same speech from which I quoted earlier when Peter first spoke after Pentecost, he also said this, Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them but they did not. So he's talking about when Moses killed the Egyptian overseer who was beating the Hebrew. In Moses' mind was the idea that his divine destiny was tied to the liberation of his people and that he would use this incident to incite an insurrection that would produce the liberation of the Hebrew people. It didn't work out that way, but that was in his mind. Now think about the major influences that have shaped who you are. A parent who said you would never amount to anything or a parent who believed you would conquer the world. Uh, Maybe you never went to college or maybe you went but you never finished or you're highly educated. Uh, Maybe you have committed at least one great sin or you have led a fairly outwardly moral life, or you were a real jock, and when they chose teams in elementary school and high school, you were always the first or second chosen, or you grew up with serious health challenges, or you were the one they always chose last, and you know that when they chose you, they didn't want to choose you. Take a moment and identify in your mind the major influences in your life. And hold that thought because I want to now transition to how the way we perceive ourselves, that is our identity, influences our behavior. So there are two huge events in Moses' life that that compelled his behavior, behavior, drove him to act as he did. And we're only going to talk about the first event this week. We'll talk about the second event next week. But um, the first event was Moses' decision to kill the Egyptian. Now, again, quoting from Peter in Acts, looking back through the revelation of the Holy Spirit, what was going on in the mind of Moses? When Moses was 40 years old, he decided, now listen to this, he decided to visit his fellow Israelites. He saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian, so he went to his offense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. So Moses knows that God has called him in a special way to liberate the Hebrew people. And he has decided to visit his fellow Israelites. So there may have been a period of time when Moses didn't identify with the Israelites. But as he grew older, he identified with them more and more and more. They might not have identified with him because he was privileged. Uh, In fact, in the black community, there were slaves who were invited into the master's house, and they were called pejoratively, I'm going to tell you what they were called, well, we would just call them house Negroes. That's not the term that was used, but it meant that they thought that they were better than the rest of us. They lived in master's house, and they spoke better, and they dressed better, and they didn't have to work in the fields, and so there was a Um, an irritation and an anger and a jealousy about the privileged position of the one in contrast to the suffering of the many. So let's look how this event influenced Moses. Knowing his miraculous birth, knowing he was called by God to liberate his people, and relying on his own power, Moses intervened on behalf of the Hebrew slave and killed the Egyptian overseer. Moses correctly considered himself exceptional. Now, Josephus is a great Jewish historian born in 37 AD, and he wrote one of the great histories of the ancient Hebrew people. And he described Moses as a great warrior who saved Egypt when it was being overrun by the Ethiopians who had worked themselves all the way down to Memphis. And on their way southward, they were taking over more and more of Egypt. And, and in Egypt was in disarray. And it's, it, the, the text implies from the writings of Josephus that reluctantly Pharaoh turned to Moses and said, we need your help. And Moses gar, uh, gathered uh, the Egyptian soldiers and they routed the Ethiopians and uh, pushed them out of all of Egypt. He became a hero, but he was always a suspect hero. Now, Moses was not just um, uh, an exceptional man, viewed so by circumstance. He was a natural leader. However, he made the mistake of thinking He was a leader because, because he was Hebrew, strong, intelligent, and born under miraculous circumstances. See, Moses, let me explain the error of that thinking by a few observations. First, Moses was right to see himself as special. He was special, but not for the reason that he thought, however. He did not make himself special. God made him special. Moses saw himself as a leader based on his personal prowess, not because of God. You see the difference? God did not call Moses because Moses was a leader, he was a leader because God called him to leadership. And God had given him abilities consistent with the call of leadership. God sovereignly structured Moses' circumstances to develop him as a leader. This was God's work, not Moses' work. The the second mistake Moses made here is that uh, he didn't understand that the only way to be a leader in God's economy is to have your identity rooted in Christ. Now, I know you say he, he didn't know about Christ then, but it doesn't change my point. Christ is the true servant. That's how he kept, there are two ways he identified himself, as a son and as a servant. For even Christ, in his own words, came not to be ministered to, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. Therefore, our identity must be rooted in this concept of servanthood. If not, we will make some grave mistakes. In other words, every leader must see himself as a servant to Christ and for Christ. Now, you may think, because I use the word leader, that you can tune out and it doesn't apply to you. If you are a student and have a roommate and, a, and you're a believer, you're a leader in that dorm room. If you're a father at home, you're a leader in your home. If you're a mother and a wife at home, you're, you're a leader in your home. If you are the only Christian at, co, at, among all your co-workers, you are a leader in that setting. I, I don't think of leadership as something that is publicly visible and pronounced. It is a function that God gives to every, leader, every believer because he says we're salt and we're light. So, third observation. God sovereignly gives us certain gifts, talents, and circumstances. Those gifts should not make us prideful or presumptuous. The gifts are ours, but they do not belong to us. They belong to God, he can enlarge them, reduce them, refine them, or dull them, or take them away according to his own sovereign will. So one person may have a talent for catching a football, and that talent comes from God. The drive to go out there every day and catch 100 footballs is a desire that comes from God. Every desire we have that is in any way positive is traceable back to God. Every ability that we have. Can you cook? I had a meal with some parishioners here. And let me tell you, the wife is a fabulous cook. That's a God-given gift. Maybe she wasn't born with it. Maybe she learned it. But the ability to cook, the desire to know how and learn, it's a gift from God. Everything that we have of any valuable value is traceable to Jesus Christ. Fourth observation, pride is one of the greatest sins. Think about it. When Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment of the law? He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, and with all your strength. In effect, he is saying, recognize that God is preeminent over everything in the universe and therefore must be preeminent in every area of our lives. Uh, Nothing is equal to or can compare with God. God alone is self-existent, self-sufficient, and eternal. He doesn't need anyone. He doesn't need anything. He doesn't develop. He doesn't grow. He doesn't mature. God is. Pride puts self above God or on an equal footing with God. For example, a man believes his talents, his drive, are innate rather than God-given. You will hear the phrase, I pulled myself up by my own bootstraps. Pride removes God from the throne of our hearts and puts self there instead. Pride caused Lucifer to rebel against God. It drove Adam and Eve to eat a forbidden fruit so that they would be like God. Uh, Pilate recognized that it was envy that drove the scribes and Pharisees to turn Jesus over to him to be crucified. Pride is the failure to recognize that God is preeminent over everything and that we are totally dependent on him for life, breath, and all things. Now, having made those observations, I want to explain the ways in which Moses' identity influenced him to act outside the will of God, although he was in the purpose of God. When I say he was in the purpose of God, he correctly understood that God had raised him up to liberate the Hebrew people. He was right in that. But Moses was acting in God's purpose. But where is the problem then? The problem is that Moses sought to fulfill God's purpose in his life in Moses' own way, not in God's way. Moses' sense of who he was compelled him to disobey God, to act in his own strength, in his own wisdom, in his own manner, in his own timing. This disobedience was Moses' own sin, not God's failure to properly guide him. Moses was so full of self-confidence His image of himself was so high that he felt he could act without God. And the result was murder. He killed a man, he acted outside the will of God, and he had to flee Egypt and his family, never to see his family again, at least his mother and father. He did see Aaron and uh, Miriam, uh, we know later. He was separated from the children of promise and as far as he probably thought, he was alienated from the promises of God as well. The promises God gave to the Hebrews through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So what might this look like in your life? Perhaps at work you see yourself as better or more capable than others and you resent the promotions they get or the accolades they receive. Perhaps you have the gift of teaching and believe you are special because you have that gift and expect people to treat you with deference because of that gift. Perhaps you observe special talents or gifts in your children and you purpose to develop those talents by being overbearing, aggressive, mean. Uh, Now, of course, you see it as trying to make sure that your child lives up to his or her abilities, that they don't waste their talents. But you do not consult God about his plan for his children whom he has given to you to raise for his purpose. As a result, you are frustrated or angry because your children are not doing what you feel they should be doing. And they are frustrated and angry because they feel you don't see them. You don't know them. You just push them, and you don't understand anything about them. Perhaps you are prideful and foolishly believe that you have something to offer God. I remember once uh, I was sitting with another group of men, and, and one guy said, well, you know, I want to be successful in my business so I can give money to the church. And this guy, the older guy who was like a mentor to us started laughing. He said, that's so stupid. God doesn't need your money. He said, God owns the universe. You're not doing God any favor. Now, you may want to earn money for other reasons, but don't say you, you own it so you can give it. Give now. The God who, who, who fed 5,000 plus people with three loaves of bread and, and five fish can take what you have and bless hundreds and thousands. He does not need your money. Uh, Perhaps you're a good man and you think God should be using you more than he is. Other people should appreciate you more than they do. How fortunate your church is to have you as a member I want to talk to you privately after. uh... (laughs) So now I want to talk a a little bit about how the gospel transforms us. Because we've looked at the the way that um, our circumstances influence how we perceive ourselves. We've looked at how the way we perceive ourselves influence how we follow Jesus. But now let's look at how the gospel transforms us. I was having, um, I'm blessed to be married to a woman who's smarter than I am and better than I am. I know it, and my friends always remind me of this. So it's hard for me not not to realize this is true. Um, But we were talking about three weeks ago, and she was talking about somebody who was really famous and really successful, and I can't remember who it is now. But she said, he or she is just insecure. And a light went on, and it finally dawned on me. We are all insecure. Think about it. This There is always someone better, faster, smarter, funnier, you name it. Three things erode our talents, at least three things erode our talents and abilities. One is time. I was looking at a documentary last week, The great Jim Brown, one of the greatest football players ever, is now on a walker. Aretha Franklin cannot reach the notes she used to reach 20 years ago. Second, circumstances erode our talents and abilities. Look at Tiger Woods' injuries and his divorce. Accidents, basketball players who in their prime can't play because their knees go bad. I remember Deion Sanders reading his his testimony. He was a superstar in football and baseball and was about to commit suicide because he was so depressed, notwithstanding his money and his fame. And the depression was depressing his play. Sin the other element that erodes our abilities. This one is perhaps very obvious to you. Lyle Alzado, great football player, uses steroids because he wants to, needs to, be stronger, faster than everybody else he's up against. Dies of brain cancer. Why? Steroids. Richard Nixon's pride. Couldn't stand criticism. And so he tapes these conversations that hang him. Senator John Edwards said, I thought I could do no wrong. Why? Because everybody was calling them the savior of the Democratic Party. And he thought that he was above the law and he committed adultery and hypocrisy of the worst order. And Hemingway dies of depression and alcoholism despite fortune and fame. But there is, however, a deeper reason for our insecurity." Our personal inner conviction of being incomplete. Let me read just a little bit from that testimony of Dion Sanders that I just talked about earlier. The Bible describes in its first chapter of Ecclesiastes as chasing after the wind. And that's exactly what I felt I had been doing. I tried to, buy my, to be myself something to make me happy and I was even emptier than before because I could see that nothing could possibly satisfy the hunger deep down inside. I tried throwing myself into my career, into sports, seeing how far I could go, and when I achieved every goal I could think of, I was right back where I started. Empty, 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 and nothing I did could touch that deep loneliness inside. I was just running and I couldn't stop. My life was falling apart. I was pretty much at the bottom during all of this. And my baseball game started to fall off and before long some of the guys on the team could see something was wrong. But I don't think anybody ever guessed that my life was in shambles. There is a good reason we feel insecure. We are not yet what God intended us to be. In the Bible, in Genesis 1, it says, God says of man, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea and over every living creature. And and when it says uh, increase, uh, I mean, be fruitful, you would think, why does it say be fruitful and increase in number? Because that seems an unnecessary repetition. But the Hebrew word that's translated increase in number means to become great. So you're going to be fruitful, you're going to be productive, you're going to have children, but I want you to become great. Become great. And, and, And we realize, no matter how good we are, that we are below our potential. I remember reading in Parade Magazine as a kid that we, were, we use, humans use less than 10% of their brain power. And that if you could get somebody to use 12%, they could rule the world. And so that means we got 90% unused capacity. And so we know, and this doesn't matter whether you're a believer or not a believer. We just know, because of this inner conviction, that I could be better. And we may say it other ways, that, You know, I could be nicer, or, or we say I should be nicer. Um, I should be more generous, I shouldn't resent what they say, or I should study harder, or I should have more fun, I should be like, whatever it is, we realize that we are lacking. And even if we don't believe God, our hearts tell us that we are not all we should be. So. I went uh, on Amazon and I just typed in top 10 self-help books and I knew that they would not be written by Christians. Top 10 self-help books. Here's one, Man's Search for Meeting by Siktor Frankel. That's the number one. Other one, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And the next one, Awake the Giant Within. Doesn't that have the right ring to, Awake the Giant Within. By Anthony Robbins, and you know we all. And I remember here in San Diego. Some of you weren't here and too young to remember Terry Cole Whitaker, and they were just filling the convention center. What I can't remember the slogan they used to say, but it was like it was sort of like the army thing: be all that you can be. And there were lawyers coming out there and coming back to partnership meetings. They look at you and say, "Be all that you can be," <laughs> and everywhere you go, "Be all that you can be." And I'm going, "What does that mean?" be all that you could be. Um, we yearn for transformation. We yearn to be better than we are. We yearn to do the things that we have in our hearts that know that we could do, but we don't. I don't know about you, but I love heroes, and I love superheroes. Give me a comic book with a superhero, I'm going to read it. A movie comes out, I'm gonna watch it. And I believe that our need for and love of superheroes is is across cultures. It doesn't matter what the culture is. Because they demonstrate the possibility of very real and very dramatic transformation. Uh, and, And inwardly, we know the problem is bigger than we can deal with. And of course, we understand as believers that the problems are sin and death, rebellion against God. But the world may not cast it that way, but the world understands that the problem is bigger than we, and we can't do anything about it. That's why if you look at superheroes, the origin of their superpowers are always external. I mean, Superman comes from a different planet, Krypton, to a gravity and a structure very different, the Earth's. Captain America, gets this injection in his body, Spider-Man gets (laughs) hacked by a super genetically engineered spider. It's all external, but the issue is we recognize that inside ourselves is the stuff that can be used for transformation, but that we can't transform ourselves. And so what we come up with are these cultural models where the transformation is always given externally. That's why, just one of the reasons, you have to love Jesus Christ. I mean, look, following Jesus means we must surrender to him in every aspect of our lives, including our identity, our sense of who we are. But the, and and the, the good news is that Jesus is transforming us. But look how he did it. He did it by transformation downward. (laughs) He became flesh. He was born to a disgraced Hebrew woman in a family that caused such embarrassment that the father's hometown would not even take him in, in a small village In a nation occupied by an oppressive foreign power under the rod of God for their disobedience. That was the time and the circumstance that Jesus agreed to come to earth for our sake. He did not come in power, he came in weakness. He did not come in pomp and circumstance. He came in a manger to this disgraced family with no fanfare that the world would then recognize. And he lived for 30 years in obscurity in Nazareth as a carpenter, building tables and chairs for other people, paying the bills for his family when Joseph died. And then at 30, when a Hebrew man could become a, in, in, the, in the Hebrew culture, you couldn't become a functioning Levite, that is, function in the temple until you reach the age of 30. So when he became 30 as our high priest, he began his ministry. And he labored for three years under the most intense opposition, coming to transform people, to take them from death to life, from incompleteness to completeness. Jesus doesn't bring the gospel. Jesus is the gospel. It, it is not The gospel is not a message. The gospel is a person. It is God in the flesh. That's the gospel. God knows we can't go to him, so he comes to us. We can't transform ourselves to deal with him, so he transforms himself to deal with us. And he comes to earth, and he is our true hero. But unlike our superheroes, he did not ingest anything, nothing external transformed him. Because Jesus as the father is self-existent, self-sufficient, and eternal. He transformed by becoming flesh. And unlike our superheroes, he divested himself of authority and power. But not to save himself would rather to save us. He had all the power to come down from the cross. Well, he had the power to avoid the cross. When Pilate asked him, why aren't you speaking to him? Don't you know have power to take your life or to give it? He said, you have no power over me, except my father gives it to you. He said, I can call down seven legions of angels right now. And when he was on the cross, he had absolute power and authority to to come down from the cross. And when they walked by him and said, you saved others yourself, you cannot save if you are the son of God, come down from the cross. Totally within his right and power to do so. But of course, had he done so, you and I would live in the world completely without hope. And the only transformation you and I would experience are the transformation that worms give to corpses. Speaking of his relationship with the father, Jesus said this. I do always those things that please him. Jesus doesn't do anything externally to us. He does something far greater than that. He indwells us by his Holy Spirit. Now, let me tell you, I live in Bill McCurran's skin. And there are so many times this guy disgusts me. I want to get away from him. I'm sick of his attitude. Ah, he bugs me. But I can't. Every time I run away from him, the guy is right there with me. <laughs> it is amazing to me that God would want to become f- flesh and then indwell me with his spirit. So that means he hears every thought, hears every word, feels every emotion, observes every deed. I don't know why God is saying, ah, I'm cheering. You're driving me nuts. That would be a reasonable response from God. But yet, indwelling dwelling us with his spirit, the spirit of the living God actually takes up residence in our hearts. And that's every believer. And although, and, and, and he is in the process of transforming us. Right now, every day, we are being transformed. Now, sometimes we resist it, and sometimes we cooperate. But, but the good news is our transformation is not dependent upon us. It is part of the very work of Christ, just as salvation is the very work of Christ. But, but we can hinder and we can accelerate. We can make it easy. What did they say in the, in, the, in the cop movies? We can do this the hard way, or we can do this the easy way. And I've been beaten across the head enough now, I really kinda wanna do it the easy way uh, when I come from home to work, I often travel down Market, and I love it because it's quiet, it's not the car zooming by on the freeway. And for over a year, I would drive by uh, this uh, place under construction at 11th and Market. And for the, uh, like a year, it was covered with those uh, like plastic sheets so you couldn't see what was going on. And for a year, and one day I drove by it, and the sheets were down, and it was just incredible building. I had not observed anything going on inside. As far as I knew, it was just a sheet up there, nothing was happening. And that's how sometimes it is with us. Uh, especially if you're married, you know that's what the way it seems. For if you, your wife looks at you, and that's where she sees a sheet. <laughs> but God, by his Spirit, is at work in us, He's giving us a new wanter. The things we used to want, we don't want anymore. The things we never used to want, we now want. I remember when I prayed, and I didn't know I was praying for salvation, I confessed to God, I hated. I told him, I don't like to go to church, I don't like to sing hymns, I don't like to read the Bible, and I don't like to hang with Christians. But I do love to play squash. I'm telling you this. And if you are who you say you are, make me love these things more than I love to play squash. So here I am today, having played squash in a decade, love coming to church, love singing hymns, love reading the Bible, love fellowship with other believers. God is at work uh, transforming us. So let me ask you in your life on this issue of who you are. What is it that is influencing how you perceive yourself? Is it the successes you've had? Is it the fact that you're really good looking? Is it the fact that you're a really good athlete? Is it the fact that you were really good in school, really smart? Or is it the fact that Jesus Christ has saved you? Is your identity so rooted in Christ that he can uproot you from your present circumstance and put you somewhere else, and the sense of who you are is not under attack? Because your identity is not based on time and circumstance, but on Jesus Christ. A recognition that every talent, every gift, every job, every, I shouldn't say every wife, because it's not a string of wives, but your wife, your job, your career, your looks, Everything we have is from God to be used to his glory. One of our wonderful church members here was angry because her boss continually gave her instructions regarding stuff she clearly already knew how to do. And would just bug her. And she complained to a Christian friend about this, and and, and I don't know why. I get so angry, she said to her friend. And her friend said, well, it's because you want the glory. If the goal is the glory of Christ, if the goal is to increase the name and fame of Jesus Christ, there is no pride in what we do. There is pride in what Jesus has done for us. you can, I'm not talking about any false humility. Like, if you're a great cook, you don't say, well, no, I'm not. Say, isn't it wonderful how God has taught me how to cook? You you, you see the difference? If you're a a real smart person like Sunil's son, you know, somebody said, man, you're really smart. You don't say, well, no, not really. You say, well, I'm so thankful God's given me intelligence. I don't know why. But the point is, you, the attention and the focus is Jesus, not us. And when we do that, when we see our identity rooted in Christ, we always follow him. Let's pray. Father, we um, are so thankful that Jesus Christ never lost the sense Of who he is. Although his family didn't understand, his friends didn't understand, the disciples into whom he poured his life didn't understand, his countrymen not only did not understand, they hated him for proclaiming who he is, and yet he never lost sight that he is your son, that he is the Messiah come to save. He is the source of all identity that is worthwhile for us, whether we're black or white or Asian or Egyptian. It doesn't make any difference. We ask you to give us a deeper, richer sense of who we are in Christ and to celebrate with great wonder the many gifts that you give us every day in our person. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.